Welcome to the House of God podcast presented by the Collective Choir on Eau Claire Hometown Media. We'll share sermons to help you get to know a different Chippewa Valley church each week and to keep you up to date with the Collective Choir. I'm Shane Spencer, and here's your host, Zachariah Putney. Thank you, Shane. This is episode seven. Uh, I'm excited for this one. This week we have Landmark Church. This sermon was one of the one of the first ones we had in mind for this podcast. The sermon was our announcer Shane's suggestion. Um, the collective choir visited Landmark Church last fall and performed there, and we enjoyed it a lot. It was a lot of fun. They had a little outdoor stage. It was great fun, and the sermon was excellent. You'll get to hear that today. This last week, I've been thinking a lot about uh, unity and diversity in the church, and that's kind of a theme of this podcast, so I'm just thinking about how even in the Bible, there were disagreements between believers. James emphasized you need you need to do the work of being a believer. Faith without works is dead. And St. Paul emphasized we are saved by grace through faith so that no man can boast in him in his own works, that Jesus is the one who saves us. And these are both in our scriptures. And these were both founders of our church. So there's room for disagreements. There's room to be close with brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree strongly on important things in our faith. Yeah, I've I've just been considering that that this week and hope it encourages you. All right, let's let's get into this. Landmark Christian Church is in Halley, well, in Chippewa Falls, kind of on your way to Halley on Business 53 there. Pastor Brad Crocker leads this church. It You can find it at landmarkchristianchurch.com. Uh, the sermon, which uh, left a mark on on Shane and I and many in our choir, uh, is entitled, Christ is Our Victory. Please enjoy. All right, if you want to continue with your bulletin, I've got our scripture passages are on the um, the bulletin today, as well as, uh, if you want to look them up, it's Colossians 2, and then also 2 Corinthians 2 as well. But I, I am going to ask you to stand up. It'll just be for a minute, but I didn't ask you to stand up again here for a second. And I'm going to put on, I want you to put on a couple of different poses this morning. And the first thing I want you to do uh, is give your best victory pose. Imagine you just won the Super Bowl or you just won the Great British Baking Show or whatever it is. Give me your victory pose. There we go. All right. Okay, now, just the opposite. Give me your defeat pose. You just lost the worst thing ever. What do you look like? All right, very good. Have a seat. The question I want to put out there today is, which of those postures, victory or defeat, is closest to how you look on a day-by-day basis? 
Are you living as victorious or living as if you were defeated? I think one of the reasons we often feel defeated is because we can only see what's going on down here on our little earthly realm. As you know, if you've read the scripture, there is, there's really two realms of reality. There's this earthly realm on which we live, and then there's also the spiritual realm, which our eyes can't see. Um, inhabited, of course, by, by God, but also by the angels, and also by the evil powers, Satan and the demons. There are two different realms. And one of the reasons we don't feel victorious is because we can only see what's going on around us right here. But in our passage this morning from Colossians 2, Paul pulls back the curtain just a little bit to reveal something that's going on in the spiritual realm. And when we see that, we can understand why we can live as victors every single day. So what I want to do is take a look at this passage from Colossians. And then for my third point, I want to jump over to a a very similar passage similar but opposite, so to speak. You'll understand that when I get to it from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So let me begin, though, by reading from Colossians 2. We're going to back up to the end of verse 13 and then roll on through verse 15. 15 is what we're going to focus on, but I want to set some context. So Colossians 2.13, or the end of 2.13 says, He forgave us all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in Him. So there are two pictures in verse 15 of why you can live as an eternal winner. And the first one is that your enemy has been disarmed. He's been disarmed. So as we get to verse 15, we see that Paul is elaborating on the fact that we're forgiven as Christians. He forgave us all our sins. And he talks about that as getting rid of the certificate of debt. We showed that last week with the paper shredder. Um, He also says this debt has been canceled by God because it's been nailed to the cross. So this is all focused on and flows from the cross. But then in verse 15, he shifts our eyes to the cosmic realm, that that spiritual realm that I referenced. And and he talks about the rulers and authorities. And when he says rulers and authorities, what he's talking about is the the powers of evil that live in that spiritual realm. Um, Satan and also his demons. Why would they be called rulers and authorities? Well, Paul also refers to Satan as the God of this age. And Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. And and what they're saying is that in this fallen world, broken by our sin, Satan and his demonic crew hold sway. Jesus Jesus and the kingdom of God are really interlopers in this world right now, taking back what Satan has seized. Um... But this isn't a negative statement. He says that these rulers and authorities have been disarmed. Um, he says that their, their weapons or their key weapon has been taken away. What does he mean by that? How does Jesus dying on the cross and thereby forgiving our sins take away Satan's weapon? Well, I, I want to share an analogy that I shared with actually in a sermon about five years ago, um, but I suspect not that many of you remember it, so I think I'll use it again. Maybe I'm wrong, I doubt it. Um, my favorite show on TV are cop shows. 
Um, and a classic scene in a cop show goes something like this. So there's a bad guy, right? A criminal, a villain. And he's been a menace the entire show. But finally, finally, at the, towards the end of the show, the cops have him surrounded, right? And there he is, and there's cops all around him, and they got their guns out, and, and he is powerless, right? He can't do anything to escape except the one thing they always do in these shows. He grabs some sort of innocent bystander, gets him, and puts a knife to the guy's throat, right? And he says, drop your guns and let me out of here, or I'll kill him. And inevitably... The cops lower their weapons, right? Because what matters to them most is saving this individual. So let's just quickly think about that scenario. So the, the good guys in this situation, they have way more power than the bad guy, right? There's really nothing he can do. But they're helpless to stop him because the bad guy has the key weapon. He's got the knife to the throat of the very one they want to save. God is utterly more powerful than Satan and all the other rulers and authorities. But Satan has what God wants, us right? What God wants is for the people he created and loves to share eternity with him. But like the cops in the story, God is helpless to make it happen because Satan has a knife to our throats. And that knife is sin. Satan says to God, hey God, these people can't enter your holy heaven. They've chosen sin. They've chosen to be with me, Satan says, so you have to let me take them to hell. And God's got no answer for that because actually that's correct, right? He's got the knife of sin to our throat. So what's God going to do? Well, let's go back to our cop show scenario. And I've never actually seen a show where this happens. So this is getting a little more imaginative. The hero of the show said he, wa- he steps for he stretches out his arms. He puts down his gun. He stretches out his arms. He walks right up to that villain. And he says, let that hostage go. Kill me instead. And the villain hates the hero more than anything else. And so he thinks, this is my opportunity. And so he, he shoves that hostage away and he takes his knife and he plunges it right into the chest of the hero. And as the hero is falling down dead, he pushes that knife all the way in so the villain can't get it anymore and he falls dead. The hero is dead, but the hostage is saved. Why is the hostage saved? Because the villain is disarmed. That knife that he held to his throat is now gone. It's buried in, in, in the hero and he can't get any more. He has no more weapons to defend himself. So the hostage is saved and the, and, the, and the villain is arrested. Now, I don't know that that's a perfect analogy, but I think you get the point. The knife Satan held to our throat was our own sin. But on the cross, Jesus let the knife of our sin sink into his soul. He took the knife for us, and in so doing, he took away the weapon that Satan and all the spiritual powers had. So that Satan can no longer say, you know, we deserve to go to hell, because Jesus took that punishment on himself, and he took it away. Satan's knife has disappeared into the soul of the Savior, disarming him, leaving him without a weapon with which to condemn us because of the cross we are forgiven and we are free to be with God forever nothing can keep us from the Lord 
But let's carry on because Paul takes this, takes this image a little further. What happened to the villain in the story? After the knife is taken away, he was arrested, he was handcuffed, and he was marched away. And that's what Paul says Jesus did to Satan. Let's go back down to the second part of verse 15. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in him. So Jesus somehow made a public spectacle of Satan and all of his demons. What does that mean? What's he talking about? I think, again, he's giving us a glimpse into the spiritual realm. And he's telling us about something that happened that our eyes couldn't see, but it was nevertheless totally real. Something that happened um, when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So on the cross, he disarmed Satan. But then in his resurrection and ascension, Jesus put on full display to all of the angels and all of the demons, all the rulers and authorities. He says he put on full display that Satan was a loser, that Satan had lost, that Satan was defeated, that he had become powerless to bring anybody with him to hell. I want you to circle the word triumphing in this verse. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in him. That word carried a a, a very particular mental image to the people of that day and age. That word refers to a Roman triumph, which was the victory parade. That when a Roman general would go off some foreign land and fight a war, and then they win that war, then this general would come back. And when they came back as conquering heroes to Rome, they would throw a parade for them. A Roman triumph. And, we, and they would parade through the streets of Rome all the way up to the capital. And, and Rome won a lot of wars. So this happened you know, more than once. Um, and so there was sort of a set, a way it would work. So in the beginning, at the, at the, op- at the, the, the first part of the parade would come like the senators and the public officials. And then, um, then after that came trumpeters blasting this victory. But then came the spoils of war. Then in the parade, all of the wonderful, beautiful objects and works of art and whatever else came from that conquered land, they would put that on display so everybody could see what was conquered. And then after that came the people that were conquered. The generals, the great soldiers, maybe even the kings from those lands that had been conquered came stripped and in chains defeated, dejected, humiliated, they marched along next in this, in this uh, parade. And then after that came musicians blaring the music. And then after that came priests uh, carrying um, censers with incense that they would, they would swing these censers and show the smell of the incense. So the parade smelled good as well as sounding and looking good. And then after that came the general on his chariot pulled by four horses. And then after that came... The soldiers, the army, and they were shouting their triumph. Yo, triumphe, they would cry, their cry of victory. The sermon will resume after a testimony from the collective choir. Hey, this is Jenny. I'm part of the collective choir. We are loud, we are fun, there's tons of laughter. Friendships are amazing and grow stronger and stronger. I tell you what, it's fun to watch the collective choir, but what I've found is being part of the family is an incredible way to watch God work. 
and God move and God work all things for good. Learning the songs helps the scriptures come alive in a really fun, groovy way, and oftentimes you can't get them out of your head. And one of the biggest blessings of being in the choir is that you get rehearsal CDs. One quiet way, sometimes not quiet, but oftentimes quiet and unseen, is how we support each other in prayer. And I wanted to share a quick story with you how prayer blessed my life in a huge way. It was about a month ago that I experienced um, some intense anxiety. And I'll never forget it for two reasons. One was because of the feelings I had, the feelings of not being able to catch my breath, as if there was this snake wrapped around my chest and squeezing and tightening. And in that same hour, a sweet sister from the collective choir reached out and was just offering prayer. She had no idea what condition I was in, but as she prayed, the Holy Spirit broke through and freed me of that anxiety attack. You know, I know the scriptures, some of them pretty well, and Paul writes in Philippians 4 to not be anxious about anything, but through everything, with thanksgiving, request your prayers to God. And I'm sure thankful that that she prayed for me because prayer works and it is mighty and I am thankful for that in the collective choir. It's something incredible and God gives us victory over things like loneliness and anxiety and fear. He's a good God. Thank you, Lord. Let's return to the sermon, Christ is Our Victory, from Pastor Brad Crocker at Landmark Christian Church. The picture that Paul paints with that one single word here in verse 15 is that Jesus is the conquering general in an eternal victory parade. As he rose from the dead, as he ascended on high to the right hand of God, and as he now reigns as Lord, he is like the conquering hero who is the central figure in that parade. And Paul gives the detail that Satan, these rulers and authorities, are like the defeated captives in that parade. Um, once proud, powerful, all not almighty, but powerful rulers, now stripped and slumped, humiliated. Satan has no hope. And that's hope for you and hope for me. The enemy of your soul has been defeated. He is an embarrassed captive. He does still have influence in this world. We know that. But he is already known as the loser. He can't take you down. He can't defeat you because he has already lost. And that means you can live victoriously. And that brings us to the third point. You also are in the victory parade. Your enemy is in the defeat parade. You are in the victory parade. And, and, and the verse we've listed there, 2 Corinthians 2.14, which uses the exact same image. It says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him in every place. 
He is again talking about this Roman triumph, this victory parade, except for now he's talking about our place in the parade. He says, you are in Jesus' victory parade, not as defeated captives, but as the triumphant people in that parade. Um, So think about parades you have actually seen, victory parades. Maybe it's uh, probably maybe some old pictures from the end of World War II come to mind or most likely maybe a, a Super Bowl team or some other championship team, you know, comes back to their town and think about what that looks like. There's, there's music and, and there's maybe confetti or, or ticker tape raining down and think about the posture and the, and the attitude and the, and the words of the people, of the athletes and others in that parade. They're standing tall and they are laughing and they are shouting and they are maybe leading singing, right? They are filled with confidence and joy. They are in the victory parade. That's what we are in as Christians. That is our life, marching on a victory parade with Jesus. But Paul gets a little bit more specific than that. He gives us a specific role in that parade. Remember, I said it when I was laying out all the different people in the parade, just before, just in front of the conquering general were the priests, Right? And what were they carrying? They were carrying censers that, that gave a fragrant aroma of incense out in the parade. And that's what Paul, that's who Paul says we are. He says, we, Christ always, he leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him in every place. That is our place in the parade. We march through life spreading the fragrance of the gospel wherever we go. Spreading the love the joy, the good news, the healing, the saving of Jesus wherever we go. And I just think it's important to remember this reality because we often don't feel that way. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one who doesn't always feel like I'm marching through life in a victory parade. These last six months have not felt like a victory parade. You know, my, I don't think I'm the only one. But reality is not limited to what we see and what we feel. My momentary sensations or what just happened does not define what is really going on. We have to look to God's word and take to heart God's word to understand the truth of victory. We have to keep praying the truth of victory. We have to keep declaring the truth of victory. And, I, and I'm so grateful to the choir because I think music and singing have a special power to bring this home. Because it it's in our heads. You read it in the Bible, get it in our heads, but the music helps get it deep into our souls. So listen, sing, um, get whatever you can do to get this reality from your head deep into your heart. Because we need to live in this victory. We need to live in the freedom and the confidence that victory gives to us. And, and let me share with you one more little story and then we'll finish and we'll move into our communion. It was the 2010 Winter Olympics. It was in Vancouver. And the famous snowboarder still is, but was just, I think, coming onto the scene at that time. The famous snowboarder was Sean White. The flying tomato, he was called. I think he's cut his hair subsequently, but... Um, big red hair back then. So on his first run in the competition, Sean White, doing the half pike, 
sailed five feet higher in the air than anyone else and did three flips in the air before he came down. He absolutely, an absolutely stunning run. And he gets to the bottom of the run and he puts his arms up in celebration because he had a higher score than anybody else in these runs. Now scoring and snowboarding goes like this. Each competitor gets two runs and they don't add the scores up, right? They just take whoever has the highest score, you know, in any of their runs is the winner, gets the gold medal. So because he won, had the highest score coming out of the first run, Sean White was the, the final competitor to go in the second run. So, and, and everybody else who went before him had a lower score than he had had on his first run. In other words, by the time it's time for him to make his second run, he knew he'd won. He, there was, he had the gold medal. Um, he could have literally crawled down that slope and still been the champion, and he knew that. But he's still got to take his second run. So what does he do? Does he decide, eh, I'll just kind of, you know, go on down there, play it safe, keep it simple, make sure, you know, I don't embarrass myself or something. And that is not what he did. He decided, I'm going to do something crazy. I'm going to try something harder than has ever been tried before in a snowboarding competition. And he nailed it three flips and four turns in the air and when he landed he landed perfectly and the crowd went crazy but that's a lesson for us when you know you have won what do you do do you play it safe do you just take it easy no you go for it you try to do something people say you can't do. You try to do something that you can only do by the power of God and in the power of faith in Him. We are triumphant in Jesus Christ. We have already won. The gold medal is waiting for us in heaven. Nothing can take it away. So knowing you can't lose, what are you going to go for? What can you step out to do that they say can't be done. We're going to finish our time this morning by partaking of communion. And as, you, as we partake, we're going to remember Jesus' sacrifice. We're going to remember Him taking that knife of our sin into His soul. But we're also going to remember what that has accomplished. Because He did that, we are victorious. And I ask you during this time to think about what you can do, what you can boldly do stepping out in the confidence of victory. Let me pray and then, and then partake and then the, the, the choir is going to come back and sing, lead us in singing again. Dear Lord, what you have done, thank you for showing us what you have done, pulling back the curtain so we can see a little bit of the magnitude of what you have done for us. Right now we remember, Father, we're thrilled by the opportunity of victory, by, by the victory, but we also now want to remember the cost that you paid. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we honor you. Guide us forward in the way you would have us to go. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you, Pastor Brad. Man, that's good stuff. Very encouraging, uplifting. Thanks again for listening. We have more coming, so stay tuned. Check us out at collectivechoir.org and on Facebook. Check us out on Spotify. This podcast is now on Apple Podcasts, Google, Audible, Pandora, iHeart, the whole works. 
So whatever you listen to, all your other podcasts on, you can follow us, subscribe to us, and hear us every week. Check out Landmark Christian Church on Facebook and at LandmarkChristianChurch.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the House of God podcast presented by the Collective Choir on Eau Claire Hometown Media. To find out more about the Collective Choir or the church you heard about in this podcast, please follow us on Facebook or visit www.collectivechoir.org.